0: Hello and welcome this morning to the Adelaide Writers' Week. It's uh, a real pleasure to be here. I'm Paul Barclay from ABC Radio National's Big Ideas Program. Thanks very much. I'll be here for uh, a bit of the week, actually. This is the first of four sessions. uh, And uh, it's my first return back to the festival for a couple of years uh, due to we all know what, uh, locked in my... uh, home state for two years so it's especially great to not be sitting in front of a computer screen zooming but to see so many of you in person really fantastic um, i'd like to acknowledge before i go any further that the land that we're meeting on today is the traditional land for the kaurna people we respect their spiritual relationship with their country we acknowledge the Kaurna people as the custodians of the Adelaide region and their cultural and heritage uh, beliefs are as important to living Kaurna people today. Uh, another thing is, remember, there's a book signing at the end of this uh, session, so you can get along and uh, buy your books and have them signed just over there, and uh, I also need to say that you know we are operating this in a time of COVID. So just a, a couple of things: do maintain social distancing where possible, and be aware of uh, if you can't do that, uh, wearing your mask. We'll be taking some questions at the end. There's the microphone in the middle there. So. Um probably 10 minutes or so of questions at the end. When we do come to questions, I say this all of the time, uh, please short, sharp, concise questions and not short speeches masquerading as questions, please. Um, How can we use the law to uh, deliver justice and social change to assist say, Indigenous Australians with the protection of their cultural heritage and intellectual property, help survivors of sexual violence? Can law contribute to a better future for the next generation of young Australians about to bear the full brunt of our relentless burning of fossil fuels? Well, the three lawyers that you're about to hear from today can talk about all of that, the power and limits of law, and perhaps how the system itself needs to change. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, Let me introduce our guests to you. At the end, we have David Barnden, principal lawyer at Equity Generation Lawyers, uh, legal practice specialising in climate change risk. David's involved in a number of public interest climate cases in the federal court, including representing eight students from around Australia who brought a class action against the federal environment minister to protect young people from the climate change impacts of the proposed Vickery extension coal project, uh, a case that was victorious. Uh, we'll hear about the update to that in a moment. Uh, sitting next to David is uh, Terry Janky. Terry is an author and Indigenous lawyer of Miriam uh, and with her, he, can you can you give that for me? Woodity it Heritage, I apologise. Um, in 2000, she set up her law firm, Terry Jenking and Company, focusing on Indigenous cultural and intellectual property and commercial law. Her most recent book is a very interesting one, uh, True Tracks, Respecting Indigenous Knowledge and Culture. And our third guest, Michael Bradley was meant to be here with us today, but can't be, uh, so he's joining us on Zoom. Um, I should be... There we are. Hello, Michael. Uh, Michael is uh, a lawyer, writer, managing partner of Mark Lawyers, a commercial firm with a strong human rights interest, and a regular columnist for Crikey. His His first book, Coniston, detailed the last massacre of Aboriginal people, and his second system failure explores how our current justice system fails survivors of sexual assault. Uh, can I just give a brief heads up right now, before we begin, that in this discussion we will be, in part, talking about sexual violence and how the legal system can be improved in this regard. i uh, just putting that out there for those of you who, who may not feel like you're up to or want to hear that type of discussion. We will be talking about it a bit today, so uh, just please bear that in mind. Uh, Thanks to uh, all of our authors for joining us today. Um, uh, All of you are using your legal skills to address big issues, to help bring about change in the law. Terry, to you, first of all, you focus, as I said, on Indigenous cultural and and heritage uh, and intellectual property protection. Um, Tell us a little about that, about what your work involves and, and what got you into this area of law.
1: Great, thank you. Hello, everybody. I acknowledge the Kaurna people, uh, the traditional owners of the land. Uh, as Paul said, I'm a Meriam-Wadji woman and a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for about 28 years, and I set up my firm about 22 years ago. 22 years ago, and the reason why I did that was because of the centeredness of culture and the arts and the practice of caring for country and knowledge being so important to Indigenous people's identity and heritage. And it really did impact um, their uh, ability to um, practice their culture, but also economics, uh, to be able to participate in in economies. And at the time that I was setting up um, or becoming a lawyer and not really knowing what area of law I wanted to focus in, I worked in the arts and the arts was going through this major resurgence of uh, popularity and there were all sorts of art exhibitions happening, you know, dance companies like Bangarra Dance Theatre setting up and all of that. But at the same time there were a lot of infringements occurring and there were carpets being made where culture was being walked on or just also knowledge being taken without the recognition of Indigenous people. And it's still perpetuating today where Indigenous knowledge is used for new medicines, but there's no access and benefit sharing with the knowledge holders of it. Uh, You know, films and stories being told without Indigenous people clarifying that that's appropriate for it to be told, that sort of thing. Um, And it actually also um, is occurring at the same time that Indigenous people are really revitalising culture. So we're having language centres, arts centres, people moving in, in caring for country, like traditional fire management practices, taking up to care for country, and their voices don't um, get the, the, the amplification that they need. So the rights that I work in is, you know, in the same way that we respect intellectual property, Indigenous people's rights should have it. And it's very important, people think that well, you know, is it a human right? Does it really cause uh, um, and make a difference? I would say it does. It's a it's a, a pinnacle right within the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. And uh, it's the way that Indigenous people express and practice culture. So um, I set up the firm to try and bridge that gap.
0: Mm. I mean, there's a myriad of examples that we could point to about why this area of law is so important. Uh, One of the most egregious examples that I can think of in recent times is the destruction of the Junkin Caves uh, in Western Australia. Uh, You know, to me, in a nutshell, just showing a fundamental lack of cultural respect. I suppose my question is, to what extent do you think can law both help to prevent something like that happening in the future, but also change attitudes.
1: Yes, well, that's really the impetus of uh, why I started working in this area, because of the laws being uh, really lacking protection. And in two ways, the laws had a very sort of European knowledge focus, or within heritage, it focuses on the physical side and not the wider stories associated with it. And our heritage regime is practically, you know, a consent regime for proponents to go through, really, and it's not really giving voice to the Indigenous traditional owners of country. So the work that I do was trying to set up the firm and try and get people to think more proactively rather than reactively. So um, 22 years ago, I was involved in a study that looked at the the gaps in the law, because, for example, IP law focuses on written expression of culture, so it's looking for someone to write it down to protect it. But if you have an indigenous culture that's uh, got knowledge passed down through the generations, the oral story is not protected by copyright. So it is open for theft, basically. And so um, I went on on this journey of trying to change the laws. And there was really no political will for the laws to be changed. So what I then did was think about how we could use protocols, education, and awareness. And uh, the book I wrote, True Tracks, really sort of tracks that journey. Mm. But it's about getting people to uh, be aware of um, the impact of their actions. And in that way, trying to get change in industry that set up standards and I've still got changes of the law in mind but um, that will bring about the groundswell that we need for legislative change.
0: Yeah we'll, we'll talk more about that obviously as the session goes on but uh, perhaps I'll bring Michael in he's uh, sitting there on Zoom feeling a million miles away I'm sure and would love to be here with us today. Um, hello Michael.
2: Hi how are you?
0: Uh, So Michael you run uh, essentially a commercial Law firm, but one with an interest in, in human rights. And recently, you've been working with uh, survivors of sexual violence, and you're the chair of the Rape and Sexual Assault Research and Advocacy Initiative. I'm interested. How did you get involved in this, and and what does your work in this area involve?
2: Yeah, a um, fairly organic process, I suppose. Yeah, we, we've um, been running for thirty years, and we've we've uh, been through getting more and more involved in human rights work as it's gone on in various fields. In this particular area um, I became involved through a journalist called Nina uh, who I was working with on some um, investigative work she was doing sort of on the media side and um, uh, through that we we kind of got involved in this campaign which ended up being called the Letters Speak campaign because um, what Nina had discovered was that in, in a couple of Australian jurisdictions, laws preventing survivors from self identifying and telling their own stories and taking control of their own identity. So they needed to get a court order to be able to do that. Um, so that was about law reform, and we successfully got the laws changed in um, Tasmanian, Northern Territory, and Victoria. Um, and in the course of that, I, um, we started working directly. A number of survivors initially through the campaign, and then sort of following on from that, we've been engaging with a large number of survivors, um, helping them get the legal system and the legal system response to what's happened to them, which is um, which is generally speaking a nightmare for them, and often, um, or in particular ways, compounding trauma to the original trauma and. uh, there hasn't been a tradition in Australia of survivors having their own legal support uh, and uh, and that's something that we've observed is a real lack. so um, and that's sort of what led to the book was was my observations of working with survivors and their with the, the system, particularly the criminal justice system and and the, the sort of gross ways in which that fails them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll talk uh, more about that, your essay is I think very instructive in terms of pointing to the real problems with how uh, the criminal legal system deals with this, as you say essentially how it re-traumatises somebody already going through trauma. But I, I should also add, seeing as this is a session about law and change, Um, And there'll be people in the audience who've dealt with lawyers in the past and who've uh, felt the sting in the hip pocket in relation to this. Uh, Your firm uh, significantly has done away with the practice of charging in six-minute billable units. I just thought I'd say uh, this is something that is to be commended. might sound minor, uh, but it is the backbone of how legal practice works in this country. Uh, so one one takes from that that you're trying to remain a commercially viable law firm, but make the law more accessible and more affordable?
2: Yeah, look, um, you know, our firm's about 50 people, so it's fairly substantial and, and it's a for-profit business. And our idea was always the way you know, build and maintain a, a completely sustainable business like, you know, one that, that, that runs itself and pays for itself, but can also um, make change and can, you know, take on causes and, and not to sort of have to do things necessarily as a kind of, you know, giving back pro bono um, thing, which is a very limited um, creates a very limited resource um, Yeah, I've been exploring for a long time how to make more more accessible, but also how to apply our own resources in a way where we can get maximum reach, maximum impact, um, and you know, continue to run a sustainable business. So, um, it's that's been an interesting journey, but but we've you know we've, we've certainly found ways to do that things like funding have you know, made a big difference as well. Um, there's, there is a lot more resource, financial resource available to, to support cause-driven um, particularly.
0: Yeah. Uh, David, if I can come to you. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, your firm specialises in climate change, risk and litigation. Uh, we'll talk about some of the specific cases that you're involved with in a second. Um, what got you into this area of law?
3: Um, well, first of all, thank you, and thank you for having me. I'm feeling like an imposter because I'm not really an author. Um, and also like to acknowledge the Kona people, the traditional owners of the land. Um, but ter- you are a lawyer. I so am So you, you fit in. I, I do write things. I don't know if the public <laughs> reads them. <laughs> we, we leave that to the judges. Um, but essentially... So my legal practice has been running for about three years. Uh, like Terry, we we're interested in exploring the more proactive limits of the law. Um, often civil law exists to, um, to, to give people redress for wrongs which they have suffered. Um, now that the climate crisis is, is really starting to, um, to show and its impacts, there's, it, it pervades society. And we're also interested in the limits of traditional environmental law, which often has a focus on reviewing particular projects, uh, reviewing the, the processes, and even if the process was not followed correctly, it will get sent back to the relevant minister, and often the same decision will be made again. And I, I echo Terry's comments around it being more of a consent process rather than you know, existing to protect people or the environment. So that's, that's why we're set up, and we, mm. we run a um, yeah, handful of cases in the federal and
0: high courts. And this is a growing area of law that you're practising in now, we're reading more about it, there's been some promising recent judgments, at least a couple of which actually you've been involved in. How How much hope does this type of litigation provide us in terms of driving the change that's needed in how corporations and governments deal with climate change risk?
3: First of all, it's not a silver bullet. You know, society needs to evolve, needs to understand the risks. Um, Parliamentarians and lawmakers need to do the same. And part of what the law does, in particular the common law, is evolve to reflect society's concerns and its values. Um, And so we see the law responding to that. And there is hope, uh, but it is very tricky. and, And these cases are hard fought. Uh, the government has you know, taxpayers' money at, at large to, to fund its defence. Corporations have, have pretty deep pockets. So there
0: is, there is hope, but it's difficult. So e- even some of your recent victories still yeah. give you pause to reflect on the limits of law to, to dealing with this. I'm interested in law and the existence of law and the passing of new laws by government in terms of the educative function that, that law can have and the moral function, perhaps, that law can have. Do you think that there, there, there are strictly outside of the realms of the limits of litigation mm. that you can advance social causes like environmental action free and environmental causes through law um, and the example it sets?
3: Yeah, look, I mean, litigation is my safe space,
0: I suppose. So, so maybe if we go back to that,
3: we... I mean, the Sharma litigation, which you mentioned before, eight uh, teenagers all um, involved in the school strike for climate movement brought a case in the federal court, and that case used expert evidence. Um, Really esteemed academics put forward to the court their view that every single coal mine matters, and, and what can happen is that emissions from a single coal mine project could cause the world to... Surpass certain tipping points, and so it, so it's so that in itself, bringing that evidence out within a litigation framework, um, can have certain impacts on society, cultural mm. impacts on how the government deals with decision making, and 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 it flows on, and and it's really encouraging to see. But yeah, look, there's there's other law reform yeah. um, opportunities, and and maybe, you know, sometimes law reform comes after litigation yeah, and, and the, the statutes will be updated
0: to reflect um, judicial decisions. Mm. Well, I suppose it's the theme of this discussion, how much is law responding to the demands of women who are survivors of uh, sexual assault? How is it responding to indigenous people that want their cultural heritage protected, intellectual property protected? How is it responding to the gravest risk that we face now in, in climate change? And if I can ask you that question, Uh, Terry, I mean, if you're a big corporation with money and patents and copyright, you can litigate to protect your intellectual property, no problem at all. We've all heard examples of this, big companies stopping little companies from, you know, using their brand names. How much, though, has IP law caught up with the needs of Indigenous people, would you say, especially in the period when you've been working in this field? What have you noticed? What changes?
1: Well, it is limited. Uh, for Indigenous people to take actions in the federal court because you have to basically fund it yourself. Like, there's no copyright police. It is for the copyright owner to take that up, so it's very limited. So that is why in our firm we don't do much litigation. We're writing letters of demand or giving people advice and trying to negotiate outcomes when we do run cases. We are a commercial law firm, so we're uh, writing contracts and helping uh, Aboriginal uh, artists and communities negotiate their rights. Uh, But um, this is where the True Tracks protocols came Mm -hmm. in as about being a way that we could get those companies to engage before there was any infringement. So if we could get people to understand that it was important and have a framework to work with it, then that would go some way um, if we got the big companies to understand how important it was. And that's been um, quite good in in some circumstances, Uh, but there's still more to be done. Uh, I do think we need the court cases. We have had some in the last um, at least 25 years. Um, There's been a handful of cases, and every time that I see those cases when the Aboriginal plaintiffs... um, and applicants win the case, the defendant or the respondent ends up uh, not paying any uh, damages. They end up uh, folding. There was um, a case um, 25 years ago where the carpets, um, the company, it was the first case ever to recognise Aboriginal art having copyright and there was no payment of damage because the company folded. And just recently, there was another company who um, um, was found um, infringing, misleading, and deceptive conduct, and then they folded as well. So we have this behaviour. So that's why I'm really thinking protocols and being proactive is is um, where I'm focused. But we still do need those cases.
0: Yeah, and the protocols and principles really are from reading your book, and really about respect, aren't they? And uh, You've you've actually had a a number of significant organisations sign up to these protocols already?
1: Yes, it's been really good for people to uh, use. Like, we started working with a lot of Aboriginal organisations to do that, and, you know, from land councils to language centres to art centres. But then we had uh, industries come together. For example, we uh, worked with the Australia Council for the Arts and developed their protocols on Indigenous cultural and intellectual property, which is now in its third um, iteration and used there um, to basically um, guide uh, grant applicants. And and then it's moving even more to even architecture, to design. Um, We work with language. um, Digital tech seems to be another big area. those um, organisations are coming to us to say, can you tell us about how to be respectful when we engage with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people when the knowledge is being used? Because um, there have been international conventions now, like the uh, Convention on Biological Diversity and the Nagoya Protocol on Access and Benefit Sharing Agreement, and Australia is yet to really respond to that framework. But it's just getting, you know, for example, large pharmaceutical companies coming in to do um, research and patent um, Australian uh, plants that are on mm. Aboriginal country, they need to have access and benefit-sharing agreements with Aboriginal people that they get access from, Aboriginal people whose knowledge that they are piggybacking on to uh, basically mm. manufacture those drugs.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah the breadth, the breadth actually in this field is quite astonishing when you think about it. Uh, We'll talk more. Uh, Hello Michael, we'll come back to you in Zoom. Um, I've just been reading your essay, uh, System of Failure, about how the legal system fails survivors of sexual violence and rape. Uh, You spoke to a woman called Mia, a rape survivor. You asked her, what were you seeking uh, when she took the matter to the police? she replied to you, I didn't necessarily want him to be punished. I wanted to be heard. I wanted to be believed. I wanted for him to be held to account in some way. In your experience, and from the women that you've spoken to, is this often what rape survivors want most?
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting, and not just women, a fair number of male survivors as well. Um, and, yeah, I, I've, I've, what I have observed is a, is a consistency in their um, expression of what they're looking for, for in terms of a legal system response to, to what the, they would experienced. And I haven't come across anyone for whom the offender was at the top of their list and, in fact, for most it hasn't really been... Um, sort of a a big consideration for um what they tend to talk in terms of um a restoration of what's been taken from them and you know sexual violence is a violation it's a taking of agency and uh and um, stripping away of that and um and most survivors seem to be to, to from my observation to be looking to have that restored to them, and to, to their own story and of their own, uh, their own identity, um, and they and they look to the to the legal system to help to do that, and that's where things fall apart because the system is not designed for that at all. In fact, it does the opposite, um, and all of the structural elements of our criminal justice system, in particular, which are all about uh, oppression, Protecting the interests of a person accused um, are all you know. If you design, if you wanted to design a system to compound the damage to the survivor, then this is the system you'd come up with. So it's it, by design; it is definitely going to fail to mm. give to survivors what they're actually seeking.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think we know the problem uh, in terms of getting successful outcomes through the current system rape usually occurs in private there are no witnesses on top of this the alleged is assumed to be innocent the burden of proof falls on the rape survivor there is no incentive on the alleged rapist to plead guilty almost always they'll argue that sex was consensual i mean you think about all of that and you just think i mean how do you how do you secure a conviction you you can entirely see why so many women would look at that system and think, I'm just not gonna come forward
2: under the current system. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you know, even more fundamentally than that, you talk about what is a successful outcome, or well, in fact, a success, if you call a successful outcome, mm-hmm. um, and punishment, not even that is actually delivering on what most survivors are seeking, um, because... And for one of the fundamental reasons for that is because the accused can go through that entire process from start to finish without ever saying a word, yeah. because they have the right to silence. And um, and so there's... So although the system may impose accountability on the perpetrator ultimately, there is no mechanism to force the perpetrator to take accountability, and that is, that is the missing piece. Sort of the most fundamental missing piece. Um, but, yeah, look, the statistic that um, if, if you are the victim of, of a rape, there is way less than a 1% probability that you, your rapist will ever be convicted. Um, now, that's that's why I called the, the book System Failure because that is the very def, definition of a system that is completely failed um, and yet we persist with it as if, you know, on this sort of... Pretends it is doing something useful. Clearly, it isn't. Like if you if you commit a rape, you're almost almost guaranteed to get away with it.
0: Yeah, I mean there has been piecemeal reform, but what you're saying is we need fundamental change in how we approach that. Uh, Just very quickly, um, if you can, what would fundamental change look like in this respect?
2: Yeah, it would start with a conversation that is led by survivors and understanding that really critical question of you know what what can this what should the legal system be doing by way of response? What would restore to them what has some part of what has been taken? Um, a system you know, our criminal justice system, which is all about protecting the interests of the accused and ensuring that no innocent person ever gets convicted of a crime, um, is completely um, to sexual violence, it doesn't work. And so that, we have to throw that out and start again and, and come up with something which actually responds. Now, um, there, um, there, are, there are options, many of which we could be exploring, such as shifting from the adversarial system we have to an inquisitorial system. There are elements of restorative justice which could be brought into play in this area. Um, you know it, there's so much work we don't have for solutions you know I'm not prescribing them and yeah. I'm not an expert in that area anyway it's not for me but but you know th- that's the sort of territory we need to be moving up with providers
0: okay uh, you're breaking up just a fraction but I think that we could still follow uh, most of what you were saying there. Uh, David, let's come back to uh, uh, the area of litigation that you're working on. Let's look at this Sharma case that you mentioned earlier, uh, a case brought by Anne Sharma, seven other teenagers, sister Bridget Arthur. You argued and the judge essentially agreed that the minister owed young Australians uh, duty of care to prevent, to prevent climate harm. Uh, significant victory. I suppose the question, though, is um, how significant and how much of a precedent, uh, assuming this decision is upheld on appeal, how much of a precedent uh, will it set?
3: Um, it's already set a precedent in a way. It is the first time in any common law jurisdiction anywhere in the world which where a judgment has recognised a person in power, a minister has a duty to avoid harming children, as a result of decisions that will um, essentially cause the climate crisis to, wor- to worsen, um, it, it's built on the, the neighbourhood principle, uh, which is "don't harm your neighbour. So this is this is the the law of negligence, um, and and as I said before, this is a law that develops. Um, with Donoghue this...
0: versus Stevenson.
3: Exactly. Yeah. There's yeah. a snail in a bottle somewhere. Um, so so it, it's significant, um, but it also sits in a, a historical framework which allows the law to develop. So it's by no means a, a radical decision, um, but it looks at certain certain factors like the the control the, the minister has over whether or not this coal mine proceeds. It looks at the relationship between the minister and the children, that the children have uh, a vulnerability um, to which the, the minister can... Um, Can act upon, and and the limits, I suppose, come down to this avoidance of harm, and it's a it's a pretty sensible duty in a way. Like I I go about my job, avoiding harming children, and and it just goes without saying. Um, But it it, it's a it's really important in in a in a judicial sense because it goes to future harm. Yeah. um it, it goes to you know th- these children all under 18 it's a class action uh five million people five million children are in that class it aims to protect them from from future harm that might actually exhibit 20 30 40 years down the track so it's very important
0: so do these cases does this case in particular widen the applicability of corporate law I mean you, you this was litigation taken under corporate law so could it possibly, for example, lead to large corporations being forced to divest from fossil fuels, for example? Could a company like AGL, conceivably, because of the threat of fossil fuel energy production, Imposed on the next generation of Australians be forced as a result of a similar litigation to get out of fossil fuels?
3: Potentially. So it's under the the common law, which applies equally to statutory authorities or ministers as well as corporations. And you actually see similar developments in the Netherlands where Shell was recently held to... um, to have a similar duty, in effect, to reduce its overall emissions by by 2030. And so, yeah, it is conceivable if this duty can apply to a minister, uh, um, in part on the basis that they control whether or not emissions may occur in the future, that it could be transferred to to companies like AGL.
0: And the government has appealed uh, this decision. Uh, We're waiting for a ruling on that appeal imminently we don't know what the decision will be. Um, Could this matter end up in the High Court? And if it did end up in the High Court um, and the High Court affirmed the original decision, how significant would that be?
3: Well, that's the obvious next step. I mean, the the final appeal avenue is to the High Court. We're currently awaiting a uh, decision by three justices of the federal court. Um, that decision could be in anyone's favour, it could be split, um, but yeah, the higher litigation goes, the, the, the more impact it will have, um, so everyone needs to follow what the High Court says, uh, so yeah, it potentially has quite, um, a way
0: to go and, and quite a lot of impact. Yeah, but we can't make any predictions, can we? I certainly (laughs) can't. Uh, but you are working on a range of other cases similar to the Sharma case,
3: Uh, Well, quite different, actually. And and this goes to the pervasiveness of climate change and who it's going to impact. So we have a case on behalf of long-term investors in the Commonwealth Bank of Australia Uh, that is um, accessing internal bank documents around their decision to provide reported financial support to seven new oil and gas projects when they had a policy only to provide support for new projects if it was in line with the Paris Agreement. So, so these are investors that are concerned about the management of, of the bank, of their company, which they have shares in. We have a case, uh, another case uh, brought by two electric vehicle drivers in Victoria um, saying that the electric vehicle tax uh, that Victoria has legislated is unconstitutional. Uh, and we have a... Yet another case by a 24-year-old student against the Commonwealth when it issues sovereign bonds that it's not telling people about the climate risks associated with that. And so these sovereign bonds, there's a repayment period that goes out to 2050 and the I think it's fair to say the Commonwealth dislikes that case a lot and has tried to strike it out. We've got past that hurdle and um, we're proceeding to the discovery stage which is us
0: effectively getting internal documents. Okay, great, we'll, we'll watch with interest. Uh... Uh, Terry, the federal government uh, recently struck a, a deal over the copyright of the Australian Aboriginal flag design uh, from the original creator, there'd been a dispute over this for a long time. I think the deal allows all Australians to be able to use and replicate the uh, design without fearing legal action for copyright litigation. Are are you happy with the decision? Is this this the best outcome, do you think?
1: Well, I think it's good that people can use it now without a license. But it is essentially now owned by the Australian government. And there's irony in that. Yes.
0: How does an Indigenous woman feel about the Aboriginal flag being owned by the Australian government?
1: Well, my recommendation when I um, gave evidence in the inquiry was that it should be owned by uh, Aboriginal... ..a national Indigenous entity. Uh, My um, push for a number of years has been that there should be a National Indigenous Cultural Authority that could own it. And so I'm hoping that this is a pathway to that because there is an absence of a national indigenous body that can do that now. And the flag is one way, I mean, I think it's, 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 it's great to see that people can use it like it's going to be used by our sporting clubs and all of that. Um, they did hold back on the um, making of the flags, you still can know there's only one licensee And I also think it's really important for the moral rights um, that Mr Thomas retains, because we we must remember that he is the creator and the story behind the flag, and it's really significant um, that the flag came from this country and um, the the story of it being used to advance land rights and Indigenous identity. So I think there's a lot that we have to remember with that, that it is really attached to him, um, a flag where Indigenous people basically marched for, for their rights.
0: Mm. Uh, in an earlier part of my career, I lived in the Northern Territory uh, and uh, as a result, uh, purchased either directly off Indigenous people themselves or through galleries that were run by Indigenous people, uh, Indigenous art that hangs lovingly on the walls of my house at the moment, uh, and you know, as a result of purchasing the art that way. I've uh, been told the stories of the art and a bit of the history of the art know a little bit of the provenance of the art and so on. Uh, However, as we know, a lot of art that gets sold as Indigenous art is not Indigenous at all. It's a particular problem, or it certainly was when I uh, last lived in the Northern Territory. I mean, what what can we do about this? Because this is essentially cultural theft. How do we better protect art in this respect?
1: Well, ask the questions when you're about to buy uh, where is the source of the art and who is the artist and what benefits are going back to the artists and their community. And I also I think there are, um, there's an Indigenous art code, there's Aboriginal art centres that you can buy from. A lot of the rip-offs are in your tourist sort of knick-knacky shops. So I really question where they're made. Uh, one thing about the flag and the freeing of it is that I think that we're going to expect to see a lot of gimmicky things come from across the borders and be sold here, but always look for things that are produced by Aboriginal um, organisations and um, Aboriginal artists. And um, I still think there's a need for laws and better labelling, like trademarks and certification marks.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael, if I can come back to you and, uh, and, and this dilemma of how we improve uh, the laws for uh, survivors, victims of, uh, of sexual violence. Uh, one of the things that, that struck me from what you said and what you write about in the essay is what it is that many women want as a result of the trauma that they've gone through, and, and in particular, acknowledgement and accountability on the part of the men as we know, there's nothing in the current legal system that would encourage an accused to admit that they have committed rape. That This leads us to looking at alternatives as to how we can best approach this. Uh, but there is also a view that if you pull this out of the conventional criminal justice system, uh, that men are getting off easy. They're not getting... They're not facing the full legal consequences of their actions. How do we... How do we move away from this being a zero-sum game so that uh, survivors of rape get something genuine out of the outcome? Uh, uh, Men are forced to take account, but it's not seen that they're getting off easy.
2: Yeah, it's... the stories that I selected for the essay were um, sort of deliberately, you know, quite messy stories of, of sexual um, violence, not, you know, sort of forward, not mythical, but your straightforward stranger rape scenario, which is what we, as a society, we tend to think of, you know, that's that's proper rape, whether it's where it's a stranger, but in fact, the vast majority of, of um, sexual assault occur. Um, in a context where the the perpetrator is known to the to the victim, often uh, in a relationship, um, and and often the circumstances are quite you know, difficult um, and and complicated, and is one of the reasons why convictions are so hard to secure. Um, so, um, you know, and as you say, this sort of zero sum game um, approach. You know, c- compounds that, um, and you know, so we have this sort of weird, um scenario where we all accept that rape is is you know a dreadful, dreadful crime, one of one of the worst things a person could possibly do. And if a person is convicted of rape, then they are the worst person there is. And you know, so that stain is is horrific, regardless of context or or circumstance. Um, that's what drives this you know to, to this um, sort of almost paranoid protection of the presumption of innocence and why when any man is accused of rape somebody rushes around him to protect him from the consequences and says oh no but what if it's not true and and the myth of the, you know, the, the false accusation um, but at the same time we know rape is endemic in society you know one in five women will be the victim of, of a sexual assault, um, at least. Um, and so you know, so we've got this society where, where you, you can't walk down the street without bumping into a, a survivor of sexual assault, but you're not going to bump into a rapist. Well, of course you are. They're, they're everywhere. Yeah. It follows mathematically. So, you know... We need to get away from from this sort of this this um, dramatic dichotomy and and get to a more subtle understanding. Um that, you know, very often what is required, yeah, as you say, is just accountability, um, which doesn't have to be in the form of criminal conviction and punishment necessarily. In some cases, yes, but in many, many situations no, what's required.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, men need to speak out about this, I believe, but it is tricky and challenging. Is it not being an advocate for law reform in this area and being a bloke? (laughs)
2: Um, yeah, yeah, I... I I mean, I just keep saying that, you know, I... um, I'm really an observer. Um, you know, I, I, I don't speak for anyone's experience, and and I don't and I don't try to. My interest is, you know, primarily, and, and observing that the law is broken. And my role as a lawyer, as I see it, and the role of my firm as a law firm, is to make laws of society. To make good law and to you know to be as a tool for social good and in this area like many and you know i would put um terry's area in that as well the, the, our, our copyright law not, it doesn't work anymore we're talking about 19th century legal concepts being applied to 21st century problems but of course they don't work and so it's my job as a lawyer to um, to, to be a part of the move to fix that, whatever that takes, whether that's law reform, whether it's you know activist litigation, whether it's just direct support for people who are impacted by the anomalies of the law, um, that's you know that's our social purpose.
0: Yeah, I should tell the audience here in uh, uh, at the Adelaide Writers Week that um, one of Michael's stated ambitions is to practice law differently, which is. Highly laudable, but to this end, uh, many years ago, uh, Michael uh, at a previous law firm once gave all of his staff $400 to buy themselves a good pair of shoes. Uh, let me just say I'm with you on that. Everybody needs to have a decent pair of shoes, um, Michael, um, but maybe that's just me. Um, uh, so, uh, David, I just wanted to, we'll, we'll take some questions in just a moment too. The microphones are there, so if you want to um, begin to. Uh, Uh, appear near the microphone. I'll come to you in just a sec. Uh, Another significant case actually that I should say that you ran, David, some years ago was uh, representing a client uh, who took on his superannuation company, REST. You won the case and REST then committed to a a new zero carbon footprint by 2050 uh, and some other measures. Uh, Given that super funds in Australia control billions perhaps trillions of dollars. Uh, How significant is this, and what's the potential it could flow through to the broader superannuation industry?
3: Um, Well, first of all, apologies on being pedantic. We didn't win it, it's settled. Oh, you you didn't win it? I'm happy with with that (laughs)
0: description. Um, uh,
3: But but you're right. The the outcome was a commitment to net zero by 2050, and um, what ostensibly appeared to be an overhaul of their systems to take climate change risk into account, for, for their members. There are two million members in Australia. Um, and you're right, the numbers are big. So the superannuation industry in Australia is projected to hit um, shortly $3.6 trillion. And, and in an industry which, um, with so, so much capital, and, and the ability to direct it into different places, is a key part of the, of the transition that, that many people want to see to renewable energy, to, to less pollution. And so, so for, for this particular fund, uh, I think it was, the, at the time, one of the top 10 funds in Australia to overhaul its systems and to go on that path, is, it's extraordinary. And um, it provides what we think is a, a base set of standards for, for other super funds, and this includes, you know, incorporating their, their climate change policies into agreements with um, investment managers. So these are these are firms who basically um, invest on behalf of a super fund. So it's it's about um, smoothing out these goals right through the, the chain in
0: the industry. Hey, just a final question to you, Terry, before we take some uh, some questions. What would you say is the area? most in need of protection as far as Indigenous intellectual property and cultural heritage is concerned, if you could pick one area where there's a gaping kind of hole right now?
1: Um, I would go for the access and benefit sharing laws uh, and um, the non-full realisation of the Nagoya Protocol and the need for that to be something that um, Indigenous people have... Um, some sort of um, framework to enforce their rights. So this would be,
0: a, a, say, a pharmaceutical company taking a, a, a traditional plant used by Indigenous people that they know has medicinal, medicinal benefits, say, and
1: yeah, making billions of that. dollars
0: out of it, but Indigenous yeah. people not getting their fish. Yeah, yeah
1: Queensland um, introduced new laws um, in their state, but because the way it works, you know, the states make these laws, the, the, the rest of the country needs to follow.
0: Okay, great. Uh, Let's take some questions from the audience. As I said, make them short and sharp, and we can get through as many as we can. Our Uh, first questioner.
1: uh, This is for Terry. Terry, I think the idea of a a national Indigenous cultural
4: body that can speak to Parliament sounds wonderful, but as an um, ex-museum educator who worked on lots and lots of exhibitions
1: with Indigenous people, one of the things that was brought home to me very
4: often was that one person from one area couldn't speak for other areas. Um, So I'm just wondering how you would
1: see this actually coming into being. Thank you, that's a great question and I agree that the people who are the owners of the culture should speak for it. And the National Cultural Authority could be made up of people that could make a framework that says, you go back to that group and speak to them, so it becomes almost like a clearinghouse. Thank you for that.
4: Yes. Question in two parts. Uh, the first is I've been a practitioner for 45 years, and I've formed a clear conclusion that most practitioners are interested in money, and that's it, not a community service. Uh, the law society supports that. The, the reforms of 06 happened in Britain; haven't happened here to the division of the profession. Uh, What have you got to say about that? There's no quality of access to law. Now, the second part is individual practitioners can go away overseas and work. Go to Colombia, protect communities in Colombia from government and military, for instance. Kurdistan to protect our victims, our uh, veterans that go over there to fight against ISIS that are being prosecuted by our government. Uh, That sort of thing. Uh, That's another way you don't have to sit at home with your firm. You can actually go away and do things as well. Thank you. Uh, uh,
0: I think, David, you're you're qualified to some extent to not necessarily talk about Kurdistan, uh, but to to, to talk talk about that.
4: Uh,
3: Well, just to the first issue, I think everyone on this panel is doing an exceptional job of trying to provide access to justice. Um, And I I also think in terms of... Yeah, there's a lot of things lawyers can do, but I I think... um, I can't speak for Michael and Terry but I, I think we're all here and we're doing the best we can here.
2: And,
0: and uh, just, just following up though on that I mean you're working in an area of litigation uh, where you know it's a David and Goliath area that that you're working in and if you lose costs are awarded against you and against the plaintiffs who often have very little money. How much does the threat of costs being awarded against the plaintiff deter the type of litigation that you're working on, and how much do you rely on pro bono barristers to do a lot of the heavy lifting for you?
3: Yeah, look, the, the cost issue is enormous in terms of its um, how it discourages litigation. This is why we have a 25-year-old student suing the Commonwealth Government over sovereign bonds. You know, she, she's brave. But this is why we have eight students, again, suing the Environment Minister. They're brave. They see the climate crisis coming. Um, they're stepping up. It's, it's extraordinary. Mm.
0: Um, sorry, yeah. what was the, the next yeah, part no, of the question? No, <laughs> I think I think you've answered it. I mean, yeah. the, the barriers to litigation, the uh, financial yeah. barriers
3: and, and look, to litigation. We, uh, uh... You know, I, I, for some reason, get invited to speak at these things. We have a huge team, right? We, we work with barristers who are very generous with their time. They, they don't charge their full amount of fees. The amount of um, pro bono or, you know, low bono support we get is extraordinary. And it's wonderful to see the legal profession stepping up.
0: Yep. yep. Okay, next question.
4: So, first off, a huge thank you to the three of you for your efforts. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, My question relates to uh, the three of you in your area of expertise. Do you have an opinion about the current federal or state governments that are in power? And can you give any examples of good governance that is currently (laughs) happening (laughs) or is possibly in place? Wow.
1: Is that Michael's question?
4: (laughs) Where do we
0: begin? Michael, any thoughts? Do I have an opinion? <laughs> <laughs> um, um, oh, ma- yeah, maybe no, I could no. maybe I could narrow that down a little bit and, and talk about you know we've had a year where there's been a lot of attention, uh, for example, on uh, you know, men treating women extremely badly, sexual assault cases, uh, uh, inappropriate behaviour in the workplace, and so on. Uh, perhaps. Are we seeing any change that you think is flowing as a result of the outrage that surrounded many of these cases?
2: Yeah, yeah. Look, good, it's good, that's a good question. Uh, um, in, in that specific area, down uh, in, the in you know the last couple of years, an example of the best is how the High Court handled the allegations against um, Justice Dyson Hayden. Uh, Justice. Um, appointed an investigation um, and then accepted the outcome, published the outcome, apologised to the victims and um, and then that was followed with compensation to to those victims who pursued claims. Now, that was textbook um, institutional response, um, you know, perfect. Um, and so that's, that, you know, and that's coming from one of the highest institutions in the country. So that's going to have profound impacts, both um, through government institutions and corporate institutions, because it's set up You deal with, you know, that kind of, of awfulness. Um, the federal government itself and federal parliament has set the opposite example in, in, in the Porter situation, the Tudge situation, the Lamming situation. The, um, the situation of the guy working in Craig Kelly's office, like, did go on and on. Uh, every single step the federal government has taken in response to these incredibly serious allegations and matters has been wrong and has set the most appalling example. Um, so there are there's two um, ends of the spectrum. I think this is our
0: final question, I'd say. Yep.
4: Um, my is mostly for David, in the, specifically with your Sharma case. How do you feel that young people can have an impact on legislation in both the legal system and the legislative system?
3: That's a very good question. Um, and particularly because young people don't have the opportunity to vote. And that goes into a sense of um, at least vulnerability, which fed into the Sharma case. Um, keep protesting. Keep being involved in School Strike for Climate, keep networking, keep doing what you're doing. Um, I'm all for it. Um, Let us know
0: what we can do to help. Do do we have time for another one, or...? Okay. Um,
1: I just wanted to read to you that um, in the Netherlands, in in 2015, the citizens won the case against the government about their not care for the citizens. And in 2020, um, the, it's now gone on. They were uh, there's now in Belgium. There is it's in Europe going on and on and on. Do you think it will happen in Australia one day, where the citizens can say enough is enough, and we have a court case that we can put forward? 20 in, in 2015. This was already in the I, I
0: don't know the case specifically. Uh, Do you...
1: Well, I can show it you yeah. if you want to see is, later is, on. Is, I've got is, see.
0: is that the
3: agenda case around um, domestic climate emissions? Yes. No. OK. Um, yeah, look, that's, that's interesting. There's some parallels with the Sharma case. That case sits within um, a, a duties framework, which has an overlay of human rights responsibilities, yeah. which is sorely lacking in Australia. Yeah. Um, we, yeah. we don't import that international law into our judicial system. There's very little protections, if, if any, in our constitution for, for these types of things. But, but what we are trying to do is develop the common law along those
0: lines to, to protect people um, from
3: future damage.
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Okay, and thanks to all of you for turning up to this uh, terrific session today, and uh, most importantly, please thank our uh, three wonderful guests today, David, Terry, and Michael. Uh, we're missing you here, Michael, but uh, thanks for joining us on Zoom.
2: Thank you, thanks for having me. Uh,
0: and should I say that uh, you can uh, go and get a book from Terry signed, I believe, after this session, just over there, and I'll see you around the festival.